Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest member of the Device Talks podcast family. It's called Medtronic Talks. Our constant search to find new ways to bring you insights in the medtech industry led us to the fine, fine folks at Medtronic. They've agreed to make their senior leaders available to us and to you. In each episode, we'll discuss the opportunities and challenges facing one of medtech's clear leaders, so you'll have an inside view on what makes Medtronic go. We'll ask the questions, Medtronic will provide the answers, and our great network of sponsors makes it all possible. So sit back, hop on a treadmill, take the dog for a walk, whatever you do when you listen to a great podcast, and let's listen to how Medtronic is getting the job done. Let's go. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salami. Welcome to this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. It's brought to you by Maxim. We're talking surgical robotics today. I'm going to speak with Megan Rosengarten. She is the president of surgical robotics at Medtronic. I also had the great pleasure of talking to Linnea Berman. Linnea is the Vice President and General Manager of Enabling Technologies of Cranial and Spinal Technologies at Medtronic. So we're going to talk a lot about Mazor. We're going to talk a lot about Hugo. Lots of movement in the space for the latter. Medtronic has filed for a CE mark approval for Hugo, and it's submitted an IDE in the U.S. In fact, it hopes to begin its first patient procedure with Hugo's RAS system, very soon, coming weeks. So uh, lots going on, lots to talk about. Linnea and Megan were great to talk to. We talked about where Medtronic and surgical robotics is headed. Far-ranging conversation. Very grateful for the time they took, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. I'm happy to introduce our sponsor, Maxon. Maxon, of course, is a worldwide leading provider of high-precision drive systems. I'm joined by Peter Van Beek. Peter is the business development manager for the medical group at Maxon. Peter, tell us about all the different industries, all the different projects we can find Maxon in. Using an automobile analogy, Maxon is under the hood of many critical medical devices. Maxon drives heart pumps, ventilators, insulin, dialysis, drug delivery and feeding pumps, lab automation, atherectomy devices, respirators, and surgical power tools. Thanks, Peter. Now let's hear from Megan Rosengarten and Linnea Berman of Medtronic. Well, Linnea Berman and Megan Rosengarten, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Tom. Let's understand where Medtronic is in surgical robotics. This is a field where you're making it a real aggressive push uh, there's a lot of other activity in the space as well. But before we get into the, the broader conversation, I'd like to understand what areas within Medtronic you both are working on in regards to robotics. Linnea, let's talk first about uh, your space. You're in the, the cranial, cranial spine therapy space, correct? That's correct. I'm general manager for the Enabling Technologies organization, which includes, as we're talking about today, spinal robotics, but also navigation, imaging, powered instruments, and surgical energy equipment. And that's just in the broader cranial and spinal technologies business, which also includes our spinal implants, as well as our China Orthopedics Organization, and now most recently, Metacrea. And in terms of systems, so the Maser follows under your your business? Correct. Correct. Excellent. And uh, Megan Rosengart, where are you coming from in, in a robotic sense? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the president of our surgical robotics operating unit. Our, our main focus is on what we usually refer to as soft tissue um, versus this hard tissue or, or bone. So soft tissue surgery with the robotic platform. And then we, we also have um, an, another business under our umbrella called Digital Surgery, which is a company that we acquired um, an AI-based 
simulation and, uh, and, and training, as well as OR AI company out of London last year. We actually just celebrated our one-year anniversary of the acquisition today. So Yay. it's a very exciting part of our, our company as well. That's great. So this, this is a very exciting space. Uh, we've obviously, we, we've seen different uh, attempts and other companies have brought in surgical robots at this point in time. We're seeing a lot of other players in the space, uh, startups and larger companies building their own robotics platform. So I'd love to understand from you both, from Medtronic's perspective, what is driving this sort of surgical robotics race? Is it a need to be competitive with other med tech providers in the space or are there demands coming from the surgeons or the providers or the patients? Uh, Megan, is that something you want to start off with? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I, I think, you know, there's a couple of places that are pretty interesting. That is the patient plays a different role in the last 10 years and in the last year than they have in the past in terms of driving some of the decisions and the investment in technology. Um, and and so, so part of my answer was there's a, there's a patient pull and ask for advanced technologies. But then when I step back and say, well, what's really fueling that? I, I think it is the advent of data and the access to data. Data and, and across lots of different ways. And in one way with the patient, getting now easily accessible information about care options and technology has pretty dramatically changed the decision makers and, and the way we think about um, bringing technology to bear on serving patients. So I, I think that's a pretty interesting thing over the last, again, 10 years or so that's just going to continue. And then the, the corollary on, on the healthcare provider side, so let's stick with surgeons, I'm seeing this pretty interesting change over the past, again, I'd say five to 10 years of wanting data-enabled decisions in a way that in even to proficiency and surgeons wanting more information on how they're doing and how they're performing. And it's almost akin to a shift from being a, um, an artist to a high-performing athlete. So I think there's some interesting dynamics again that kind of all boils down to being able to access more, more and more information and hungry for that that is now led into robotics and data-enabled therapy. That's a great point, yeah. And I want to get into digital surgery in a moment. Uh, Linnea, on, on yours, from your perspective, number one, what is what is driving the interest in robotics? But also with, with, with Mazur, you sort of have a unique play in that space. There's not a lot of activity in, in spine in, in regard to robotics. So how do, you, uh, how do you view that opportunity? Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. And I'll build on Megan's answer. Um, certainly the patients uh, have a strong interest in uh, understanding the, that they can get a predictable, predictable outcome from spine surgery. And today, I would say across the different stakeholders that you mentioned, there is an appreciation that spine is one of the more complex areas of medicine, and there's a fair amount of variability in how surgeons approach a procedure. Um, there's many ways to do it. There's a lot of different technology available. And so we're really trying to drive to predictive outcomes um, by getting to a stronger view on patient selection by building consensus around an approach. And so robotics was one of the pathways to getting there um, because there's some planning capabilities that can start to build that consensus and allow surgeons to execute against the plan that they build in the operating room. So it's really a convergence of recognition of the variability. So I would say that there's the drive for robotics is coming across the stakeholders. And where does, you explained the areas that you're overseeing in Medtronic. Uh, Medtronic's undergone a, a, a rather extensive reorganization. I'd like to understand 
how robotics is sort of fitting into those 20 different businesses. How many of them are they touching? Do you see a, t- a day when they touch almost all of them? Uh, how is robotics sort of, I, I understand, Linnea, you're probably, you've got your own focus on your business, but will we see robotics? How will robotics be applied across Medtronic's many platforms? I think today you've got the two examples of, of where Medtronic has already adopted robotics. and But I would say more broadly, we've got a lot of excitement around the potential for robotics in many different applications. So while these are the, the uh, current examples that we have, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, some application in, in many other business units down the line. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think the, the sort of two things came to mind with that question. And one is that we have have what we call our pan-medtronic technology vectors as it relates to robotics. And those four vectors are identified as robotic platforms. And you can imagine the things that fall into that, things like robotic arms, control systems, et cetera. And then we have navigation and visualization. We've got instruments and implants. And then the fourth is data and analytics. And by organizing on those four vectors and putting purpose investment and thought across Medtronic into those four, it's part of how we get to exactly time your question of what is that pan Medtronic view that we're building and continuing to invest in technologies and capabilities so that when we do have opportunities, and I, and then this kind of gets to the second, I think of opportunities as meaningful clinical and economic problems to be solved that could be served by a robot. And I mm-hmm. think there are, are many um, of those across the other uh, 18 operating units um, that, that we have within the business. And I, I, I know we'll start to see more of tapping into those four vectors and those capabilities and some of those other operating units. Early on, there was some debate as to whether how much value the robotics actually offered. And, and I think with other companies, part of the selling point was you your, your hospital can have a billboard up on the highway saying, we have a robot doing surgery, come have your surgery done with us, which is a, an interesting way to, to sort of add value to a, to a provider. But we're going to your earlier point, we've, we've kind of gone beyond that where robotics is really adding more than just sort of enhancing the surgical, uh, the actual surgery at the time or the surgical's performance at the time, but really building a mountain of, of evidence and, and data around it. Megan, what is the last five years look like in terms of that that transformation from a marketing tool that also added some performance, but now providing much, much more. What, is, what has the past five years been in, in, in that evolution? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's one of my favorite sort of case studies, 20 years when you, you know, just your point, and you, you depicted it really succinctly there of something that in the beginning was a little bit of a niche and a novelty, um, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and I think we were all wondering what was going to pan out in terms of the clinical and economic outcomes and benefits from robotics. And fast forward to today or the last 10 years, um, I do think we've seen a, a couple things. One, that user experience really matters, and it's not something to take lightly. So the, the advantages to the surgeon and the OR staff of having a robotic system um, to increase confidence uh, in, in precision uh, and, and visualization in particular, that, that's a real thing. And so is the ergonomic components of robotics. Those are those are real end-user benefits that I think are one of the things that made robotics sticky over the 20 years as we started to generate, to your question, evidence that there are actually either improvements in outcomes today or the, the opportunity to go there, kind of seeing the light of, yes, this when added with 
data and with added added in technologies that are getting the ability to see the unseen with the naked eye and the ability to have movements that are so precise and reduce any tremor from the human hand. Those kinds of things are iteratively improving, 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 and adding up to what we see as um, starting to see better outcomes in a clinical sense. Mm -hmm. And then I think when you look past the past five years and look forward in industry and in healthcare, I think people really believe, I believe, in the power of continuing that technology roadmap and increasing how we make better decisions with data is going to get to better outcomes, both clinical, economic, and it is going to increase access to healthcare for more patients. So it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely evolution and a journey to get it spot on and go where we came from and, and being pretty different today. Lene, I have a different question for you, but I would just uh, ask, do you have anything to, to add to that question? You know, it's interesting because Megan hit on a number of themes that I would say are very similar in the orthopedic robotic space. And What I'm excited about is, uh, I think when this started, it it offered a level of precision that was very attractive in the placement of pedicle screws, and that's just one aspect of the procedure, Um, but we'll continue to build on that, and we're seeing that already. Um, So adding to procedure, the point that Megan made about ergonomics um, for physicians to kind of save themselves a little bit in terms of the spine surgery is a very physical type of procedure. And now with the, the robotics and the way we're starting to incorporate more of our um, our powered instruments, for example, it, it's just a less uh, of a physical requirement on the physician. But then there's always been a value around planning, but a lot of physicians don't have the time or just haven't incorporated pre-surgical planning to the extent that it may add value to the procedure. And robotics is really moving that along much faster taking a few minutes to conduct the pre-surgical plan and then execute that plan with the robot, with the help of the robot in the operating room and have it go exactly as planned is one of the benefits we're seeing play it out today. And I think the, the roadmap from here just gets uh, greater and greater. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor. I'm here with Peter Van Beek. Peter, once again, is a business development manager at Maxon. Peter, let's take a step back. Tell us a bit more about Maxon. Maxon at its core is an engineering company that develops and builds world-class electric drive systems. Uh, We're a Swiss-based, privately held global company. And what's nice about our product line is you can piece together whatever you need. It's modular in its form. Do you need a subfractional DC brush motor or brushless or a servo assembly consisting of a motor, a gearhead on the front, a sensor on the back, and a controller? In other words, a complete mechatronic drive system. Uh, We provide standard catalog, semi-custom, or fully customized assemblies even complete drug and feeding pumps. Maxon does not shy away from cutting edge technologies to solve the impossible motor control application. That's great. And I know Maxon's been involved in surgical robotics for a long time. Tell us a bit about that history and what are some current trends that you're seeing in robotics? Sure. Maxon has been supplied drive systems to surgical robotics industry since its inception, starting in the 1990s with the Stanford Research Institute Golden Hour robot. Um, This is actually the precursor to the Da Vinci robot and that company. For the last 30 years, surgical robotic companies have been coming and placing their trust in Maxon worldwide based on our design and development expertise. Be it a multi-port, single-port, catheter-based robotic system, we supply the haptic and end effector drives. In terms of current trends, drive assemblies have been pushed to a smaller physical footprint, which are more power-dense, efficient, quieter, and lower inertia, especially on the haptic side. That's great. Final question, Peter. What are some of the advantages for medical device companies working with Maxon? 
Well, Tom, let's start with quality. Uh, we're accredited to quality standards ISO 9001 and 1345. We have familiarity with MDR and FDA regulations, and we can help customers navigate that. Drug makers that bring projects to Maxon will have a benefit of working with engineers at the sales, project, and R&D levels. And in close collaboration with our customers, we develop drive systems tailored to the customer's specifications using uh, simple modifications or complex, fully customized mechanisms, be it a whole insulin pump, saline tolerant drives, autoclavable options, hollow shafted motors, adaptable gearboxes of all types and ratios, a battery of sensors and drive electronics for speed torque and positional control. That's great. Thanks again to Maxon for supporting this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. For more information, go to maxongroup.us. Now back into this conversation with Linnea Berman and Megan Rosengarten of Medtronic. So I'd like to understand a bit more as to how you're, you're building, uh, how Medtronic is building your robot, robotics platform. I know you're, there's a big push of putting the, the tech in, into med tech, and this is certainly a great example of that. I know that Mazur yeah. was an earlier acquisition in the space, and Megan, you can hit upon the other acquisitions you made uh, recently as well. But has, has Medtronic's move into robotics, has it been primarily or at least initially driven by acquisitions. I know you're developing Hugo internally, but but walk me through sort of how you're building out this this robotics capability. Linnea, if you could take that first. Sure. So I think what you see represented here is that we're willing to take a variety of approaches. And with Mazor, um, they, Mazor had actually started in the early 2000s, around 2004. So they had a lot of experience in the market that uh, we really saw as valuable experience and wanted to tap and jumpstart. Our, our position in this market. And once we decided that robotics was the path forward to uh, improving outcomes and transforming spine care, we wanted to get there as fast as possible. So it started with a commercial agreement, and then the acquisition occurred a couple of years ago. From here, the developments, which are rich, will be largely organic. But from time to time, I think as you've seen with the uh, acquisition of Medicrea, also in cranial and spinal technologies, we're willing to go outside when there's a differentiated technology that's maybe not kind of in the wheelhouse of what we do really well. So I think you'll see a combined approach. And Megan, can you walk us through uh, what's gone on internally with Hugo? And, and let's talk a little bit about the, the acquisitions as well. Yeah, it's a fun story, one I'm privileged to have been there from uh, from the beginning of. So I, I, I do like to talk about the early days of, of Hugo, before we named it Hugo, um, where it, it was born out of a collaboration with the German Aerospace and Defense Organization. And we had partnered with that organization called VLR in the very early days, go back 2012 or so, um, and were working with them to partner on some robotic capabilities, technologies, and know-how. And you fast forward to today, we're on on um, one of, if not the largest and most complex organic development projects um, within Medtronic and, and massively proud of that. Also, uh, you know, this comes with a lot of challenges to get here, but that kind of theme of partnering with experts has been a very purposeful way that we've built new capabilities capabilities within Medtronic that now um, we're also looking at how do we plant seeds of those capabilities in other operating units. And that um, that sort of gets us again from that 2012, and I remember our first prototypes made out of plywood and when we were doing that work. Yeah. So, you know, to where we are today was an amazingly, you know, fun journey. And the other piece that's added to that is this most recent acquisition of digital surgery was, again, a very purposeful acknowledgement that we needed to augment not only you know, our IP and our components, we needed to augment our capabilities 
and that acquisition was as much, if not more, about a phenomenal team of people that we wanted to add to Medtronic to bolster our, our AI capabilities. So I think, you know, that's something that we'll continue to see and thinking strategically around, is it IP, is it product, is it people and talent, and doing that mix of bolstering our organic work um, with some inorganic plays in that way. This is a, a competitive space. Uh, uh, where is Hugo at in its development and how will it eventually differentiate, differentiate itself from others in the space? We are on, on the brink of our initial systems and our initial customers. And, and you know, as Ed, we've shared publicly that we're coming up on some pretty important milestones this calendar year. So you'll, you'll see us commercialized this year, which is really exciting. Like I said, given where we've been in this, uh, it's the 2012 timeframe. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that is important to, to think about with Hugo is that we went out after this with a really specific goal in mind, which was recognizing robotics has had a, a pretty phenomenal run in place in the market. Yet with that said, we're still less than 5% penetration in applicable surgeries around the world. And that's after 20 years and where we are. And we, and we recognized that back in 2012 when we started. So we, we turned our sights to what are the barriers to entering robotic surgery today? And those barriers for surgeons, for patients, for administrators, why are more people not purchasing and using? And what can we design that is going to help to remove those barriers? So that, that's been the, the purpose, purposefulness of the system is, uh, is to expand this market beyond the 5% you see today and bring the benefits of the technology to more patients around the world. So some of the ways as to how that shows up with Hugo, one is, is on the architecture. It's, it's a modular system based on separate components. And on one hand, that can seem like, okay, that's, but it's pretty complicated both to, to pull that off and the reasons why behind that. And one of the reasons um, and that we found as a barrier was the infrastructure and the footprint and the investment required for a hospital to embark on robotics all were complicated, costly, and high. And so we did a lot of time to say, okay, well, how do we bring you a technology that is flexible for how you want to use it? If you want to use one robot arm, two, three, four, we can give you something that, that meets those needs. But then from hospital administrators heard loud and clear, hey, please don't bring me a technology, especially an expensive one, that's going to be obsolete within two to three years. And we built that into the design of the system and that modularity that we can upgrade it um, mm -hmm. as technology advances. So there, there's other pieces, but it's very squarely after that, remove the barriers to purchase and use today. Interesting. I'm going through, obviously, I can't go through every product you folks sell, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, is this one of the larger systems you'd be selling in terms of space that it would take up in a place? I mean, normally you're, you're developing really cutting edge pacemakers or things that are implantable and small. This is not. Uh, is that a, was it been a different approach? It, it has, uh, you know, great, a great question and, and note. We do have some products in Medtronic that we'd call large-scale capital equipment. OON is an example of this. Um, but the, the vast majority of our portfolio are reusable or single-use devices or implantables. So this is a pretty major shift that has um, meaningful impact in, in multiple functions to become a large-scale capital equipment manufacturer. The complexity of how do you uh, not only um, design, develop, market, and sell, but install and service with excellence. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty significant and, and fun 
journey to get there. And I'm sure, Linnea, you have um, examples of that uh, yeah, as well. Thank you for, for handing it over for me, Linnea. I was going to ask, <laughs> I mean, you're actually selling a system uh, at a time. I'd love, to, I'd love to understand that sort of managing a slightly different business, but in particular, I'd like to, I'd like to understand how it's being done in this time with, with COVID-19, uh, hospitals under, under stress financially and in, in, in every other way. I wonder, number one, how, how, you, are, how you are selling the, the Missouri system, but number two, how has COVID-19 really impacted your, your work over the last year? Yeah, yeah. Lots of stories to tell there. So a uh, great question. First of all, I'll say I've been at Medtronic for 20 years and spent the first 19 years in businesses with implantable types of technologies. And so this has been a big shift for me to take on large capital. And of course, the O-arm that Megan mentioned is part of this portfolio, um, probably the largest uh, piece of equipment that we um, manufacture and, and sell and service. So the last year has been very interesting. First of all, me making that transition to the mindset of large capital and all the things that go along with that, but also the challenges. And you you hit on a few of them. So from a sales perspective, just adapting to getting access to customers and doing that in new and different ways, supporting our field as they navigate the different uh, restrictions that uh, have come into play and flex throughout the year. Um, capital budgets have been constrained, and so we've been much more flexible in our approach and the ways that we offer the technology uh, and the uh, agreements that we have out in the marketplace. And then we talk about education and installation and getting access to um, accounts when we need to, in different markets around the world, install this equipment. So I think education is one of the most interesting stories because you think about, in of itself, education is kind of an elective activity, but the whole pipeline stops if you stop the education process. And so we've really flexed that. Of course, we've converted like many companies to a lot of digital and found it to be really effective in many t- in many ways. Um, but there's still a need for hands-on training. And so we have a fleet of trucks that we have taken around the country for many years, and we are leaning on those more than ever and uh, increasing the, the roadshow um, oh. where we give physicians the opportunity to get their hands-on. And, and that's a really key part of the training for them to um, either, either train or retrain and enhance their skills or just to be exposed to it for the first time and decide if it's part of their offering at their hospital. Sometimes we even uh, have administrators who come come to check it out in that way too. So that's been another way that we've flexed over the past year. And have you had difficulty uh, getting into the hospitals, making those sales, just getting access to the hospitals? What is day-to-day, what, is, what has it been like for you? Yeah, our teams in the field, I think um, they, they have had access to the hospitals, mm-hmm. but sometimes in different ways. And sometimes it's more over the phone or as we're doing here through Zoom, they're connecting with their physicians and the decision makers in, in creative ways as well. But overall, the pipeline has kept moving and um, we're very optimistic about, about the future. Great. Well, let's let's uh, wrap up looking forward and talking about that future. We're, we're I feel like we're saying robotic surgery now, but it's going to be almost like online banking ten years from now. That I think, you know, it's going to be redundant. Uh, am I being overly confident in that, Megan? What what do you see the next five years looking like for robotic surgery with AI and, and the data you're mentioning? And, and maybe we can look a little bit beyond that if you're if you're comfortable doing that. I think good. The, this is going to be one of um, one of the most rapid technology adoption stories um, I think we, we see in terms of robotics in the next five to ten years. It's going to be a really an, a, amazing case study and kind of point in history when we get ten years in the future and look back. Um, and, and I think that has to do with 
the amount of competition and investment that is pouring into robotics and healthcare is, is really unprecedented in the past 10 years, and that's starting to come to fruition. So I, I do think, to your point, you know, just next five years, you know, crystal balling it, and I'm thinking three to four X, you know, where we see today in terms of use of robotics and size of that market in the next five years, I think if we continue, we're going to keep seeing a, a, a market and an adoption that's at a double-digit cater for 10 years. So I, I think the story is sort of just very nascent. Um, and the robotics of today uh, and the robotics of five years is going to look pretty different than the robotics of 10 years. I, I have no doubt one of us marketers will coin a new phrase <laughs> that comes, comes <laughs> with that. Uh, and, uh, and, and with that said, I do, you know, just looking at the the time it takes to wholesale adopt new technologies in medical devices, um, you know, that, that is measured in decades. So I'm, I'm sure just looking at laparoscopic surgery and, and that we're still not a majority of procedures are lap versus open around the world. Um, there will absolutely still be open in laparoscopic surgery. I say should never speak in absolutes, but <laughs> in five years, I would say probably 10 years, but to your point, it will probably be less than a, less of a thing to call something robotic surgery versus, uh, versus just surgery. That's great. And, and Linnea, how about you? What do you see happening? And uh, I don't know if you could speak to maybe internationally, if you see other countries adopting this more quickly than we do, perhaps. What is that? I don't know if it, what does that, the lay of that land look like going forward? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, first of all, like Megan, I, I do see this growing exponentially, and that's why we're putting so much investment into it. Um, very optimistic about the value that it will continue to add. And so um, we, you talked about putting the tech in med tech, and this is one of the categories where I think we, we can do that really well. So as we continue to combine artificial intelligence, preoperative planning, really predictive modeling around the procedure, um, that's just going to demonstrate great value over time. And I think uh, more and more physicians and uh, hospitals will want to get in. With that, I think health systems are becoming attracted to it as well. It is growing rapidly in the United States, and oftentimes we see growth here, usually outpaces many countries, but this is a space where I'm seeing some excitement and competitiveness from other parts of the world where uh, they also want to lead. So I think we'll see examples of that probably in China, and uh, I'm seeing that in some countries in Europe as well. Excellent. Well, it's a, it's an exciting area to be involved with. I'm sure you both are uh, excited to get on it every day. And I'm um, really grateful that you took time to, uh, to tell your story on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks Thank for you. having us, Tom. Great. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Medtronic Talks. Once again, this is Tom Salemi. I am Editorial Director of Device Talks. You can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm there under Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. And of course, you can find out more about the Device Talks platform at devicetalks.com. We have conferences virtual and someday in person, and we have our Device Talks weekly podcast. It's all there once again at devicetalks.com. But thank you for joining us on this episode of Medtronic Talks. We'll keep bringing you several of these each and every month. So just subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast, we're there. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a future episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Thanks, everyone.